I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. Before we start today's podcast, we just want to send a special bit of recognition and congratulations to Damon Fairless, who was on the show in Season 2, Episode 3, regarding his book, Mad Blood Stirring. He was on the shortlist for the Edna Stabler Award, and he didn't win, but congratulations nonetheless. Indeed. Uh, it was a pleasant surprise to be at work and edit a story about the this award that's actually presented by Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, it's an award for creative nonfiction writing, and indeed Damon's book, which was about sort of pathologies and, and violence, was on the shortlist. The winner was uh, an author named Kate Harris uh, for her book, Lands of Lost Borders, Out of Bounds on the Silk Road, which is about a 10,000-kilometer bicycle journey through Asia. So, uh, you know, obviously some great competition, and congratulations to Damon. And it's a little validation for us that we, we had him on, because it was a little far afield from the usual sports that we, uh, you know, do. Mad Blood Stirring by Damon Farrell. Let's check it out if you haven't already, and check out the podcast if you didn't listen to that one. Season 2, Episode 3. There you go. Well, now, let us quickly start into our topic at hand. Our guest today is Sean Fitzgerald, who will be talking about his book, Before the Lights Go Out, a season inside a game worth saving. The puck will drop on the 103rd NHL season on October 2nd. Corporations will pay big bucks for premium seating. Networks will dial up the hype. Fantasy rosters will be drafted, and parents and children will watch on TV or stream games on their phone or tablets. No, I'm not reading an ad. <laughs> of the children, of these children watching, how many of them will have a realistic chance of getting to the show? Not many to begin with. But even less will have a chance with parents that don't, that don't have the means, and that's increasingly becoming a problem. Google the cost of minor hockey in Canada. Just go ahead, check it out right now, see what you see. Well, not if you're driving. <laughs> what you'll find is story after story from major media outlets of how kids are being priced out of the game. On the first page alone, the oldest story on the matter is a decade old. So this problem has been in existence for a long time. If you want further background, go and listen to our episode with Carl Subban, a man who many would say has a pretty damn good job as an educator with the Toronto District, District school, school Board. And he still went without, in a lot of ways, to get his three sons from uh, minor hockey to the pros. This, along with several factors, including lack of appeal to new Canadians, has put Canadian hockey at a crossroads. And it's approaching a state of crisis with stagnating registration numbers, according to journalist Sean Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald was a sports writer for the Toronto Star before transitioning to media startup The Athletic, where he's currently a senior national writer. He recently, com he recently completed When the Lights Go Out, a season inside a game worth saving, and he did that through a series of interweaving narratives and... In that, he uh, basically tries to explain who gets to play hockey and why. Nate? Indeed. Uh, to read all, I mean, I, mean the, I think the cost of hockey is a, it's a constant sort of, you know, chattering class topic and a very real one, too, for parents. And it sometimes comes down to, like, you know, here we have our, what is our co-national sport with lacrosse. And, you know, here are so many people our age who now have young children think, oh, gosh, I hope my kids don't want to play hockey. Like, and that's, you know, not a good thing for a I've nation. I've certainly heard that. I've certainly heard that. You're right. <laughs> and, I mean, cost is the one thing people point to, but there's so many other things in terms of just, you know, the barriers to fitting in and understanding it. And, 
And I think sometimes there's maybe even a little bit of that sort of middle-class guilt, you know, do I want to put my kid into something that's so loaded with the elitism of the exurbs and sort of the stale donuts and coffee kind of nationalism. Yet among our major team sports, speaking as someone who kind of sampled them all at a very basic level, you know, being able to get out on the ice and skate and pass and shoot is just this matchless experience in terms of moving, you know, like Roy McGregor wrote in his, you know, classic uh, novel, The Last Season, you know, only hockey has it all. The basic skill level required, strength, quick thought, imagination, body contact, conquest. And then you think of the connections that, you know, as a Canadian, that you develop if you were ever in hockey. And I think of almost in every enduring friendship I've had that formed in young adulthood or, you know, on into my 30s, including the one with Neil who's across the table. There's a hockey tie in every one of them, you know. Some, I met someone and we got got each other because... You know, we had a background of the game or appreciation of it that went maybe just beyond, you know, being in a hockey pool or watching games on Saturday night. There, there was, uh, you know, it, it was somebody, you know, he could go to a Halifax Mooseheads game and I was going to journalism school in Halifax or someone who wanted to go watch university hockey at U of T on a, sat, on a Saturday night in January. Uh, you know, and then not everyone knows always going to need specifically that in their life. But, you know, having that access to hockey is, you know, it is a community builder. I think it's something Sean talks about, but it's something that's starting to fray and fragment and, and get away from us. And it is bad for the game when affluence dictates access to what is our, you know, first choice sport in Canada, which, you know, I guess is a potential way of me saying I don't like the OHL as much now that it's such a rich kid sport. But, uh, but as Sean goes into detail, like this is the people that, at the, you know, the gatekeepers, Hockey Canada, they're starting to, you know, realize this and maybe panic a little, but it takes a lot to change institutional thinking. It takes a lot for a parent to get away from what they grew up with and, and passing it on to their kid. Uh, when you've had that front runner status, it's tough to go from, you know, to be the, go back to be the hustler. And there's some points in this book where I just kind of hard to ward off, you know, despair reading about, some of these how some of these initiatives to engage new Canadians in hockey just fell flat in a way that rated that sarcastic letter Kenny response. You know, nice execution. You're doing terrific. Uh, but I mean, that's so, but Sean, you know, really goes into detail. You know, exhaustive and no doubt exhausting amount of, amount of work about the, you know the challenges that all these people are are facing and the people who have economic and emotional equities, you know, built up into the sport, uh, and true to Sean's form, as in my mind, the best sport, pure sports reporter in Canada, you know, it, he's, you know, this is a work of, you know, book-length journalism that I think not only tells you what's happening, but what it felt like, and why should I care about it, you know, while I'm, you know, sitting there on my couch reading and, you know, flaked out on the futon on Sunday afternoon with my attention going between the page, and you know, cursing out Kirk Cousins while watching the Vikings. So he has a gratitude. So I'm glad to have Sean with us. Absolutely. And coming up after the break, Sean Fitzgerald. Well, we're back on Sports Lit. Nate and Neil here with Sean Fitzgerald. Sean, we're going to get right into the questions. Hard hitting. How did we get into a position where hockey is approaching a state of crisis? 
How long does this podcast go for? Do we have? Do we have we, all night? All we have night. How much, about how much about an hour. We got about, about an hour. hour? Okay, <laughs> so that'll be part one of the answer, part one. and then the subsequent twenty-four will take up the next, I guess, month. Um, there's a bunch of problems, a bunch of issues, and it's really tough to peg down any blame, any league, any person. Um, I mean, you can start with everybody points to cost, right? It's the equipment, the registration. But what I've found now, both as a parent. Um, and as somebody who sort of researched this, is it, it's so much more. It's at very young ages, it's professionalization that, you know, just as a, as a personal anecdote that, you know, our novice team this year, that means they're eight years old, born in 2011. Um, on Wednesdays, they have a professional skills instructor. We have them come <laughs> out and I'm an assistant coach. Um, and we have a professional goalie instructor come work with our goalie. Um, and that's just par for the course. They're eight years old and, and it's fun and, and they... They're engaged and everything like that, but it is an added cost. So that's just one small example. This doesn't even talk about the fact that you know there are hockey schools, there are hockey hockey teams that operate in sort of shadow concert with you know their winter teams, where you can go play for say a team in Lee Side, and then also go play for a professional hockey school when you're not practicing with Lee Side. And these are all costs that get added up, and that doesn't even include, you know, the, the, the travel, the, the the time that this all needs now. So we're not even talking money; we're talking soft resources. That you know, if Neil and Nate don't have time to leave their pastry job or their job on the shop of the the automotive uh, department, um, you can't get to a six p.m. game up in Vaughan. And this is playing out all over. It's not just the GTA. Certainly, it's more acute here, but it's it's all over Canada. So all of these things are adding up to make hockey arguably least accessible than it's ever been in its history. And when you poked into that, what, where did – I mean, maybe there's no aha light bulb moment, but okay. where in the history of the last 30 years of minor hockey did that really start to escalate? Is there, is there a pinpoint there? No, that's a really good question. And, I mean, you take a look around and – you know, you're talking to people, and it, it does, it flows the money, right? Like, you follow the money. So when the, the salary started hitting the millions rather than the hundred thousands in a case of beer, um, that's when, you know, players started to get more invested in it. That's when, you know, more advanced coaching started coming in. That's when you see retired players, rather than going to work like Maurice Richard, you know, didn't go coach minor hockey in Montreal after he retired. But <laughs> but you can find anybody who went to NCAA Division II, and they might be running a hockey school now. So it, it, with more money available at the top, it seems like there's been more money flushed back into the system at the grassroots level, which raises the cost for everybody. I, so the, the actual time when that happened, I guess we can't identify a particular point, but is it say, within the last... 25, 30 years? The three of us sitting at this table within our lifetimes for sure, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you, you know, maybe within the last 25 to 30 years and it's just escalated um, and, and, and seemingly even faster now to the point where, you know, the GTHL, the, the largest minor hockey organization on the planet, acknowledges that the genie's out of the bottle, the toothpaste is out of the tube, whatever metaphor you want to use, it's out and it's not coming back and nobody really knows how to control it now. Wow. Um, I have to just switch gears for a second. I wanted to ask you, how did you balance 
this book because it's there's a lot of exhaustive research in it, and I read somewhere. It was Did you say exhausting? Or exhaustive, exhaustive. <laughs> I want to make sure <laughs> about three so years, right? Acutely attuned to criticism. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, um, uh, three years, almost three years exactly. So, how did you balance that with um, you know? I guess at that time it would have been either a new job with the athletic, or you just moved to the athletic, or you were moving there. How did you balance the writing a book uh, of this detail and size and working your regular job? It, it was funny that, so just a bit of a backstory. Um, I was working for the Toronto Star in August 2016, and on a Saturday, because I'm an idiot and I'm a terrible hockey player, <laughs> I was playing shinny with a bunch of pe- folks we know from social media, and I fell and shattered my right elbow, just <laughs> shattered it. Oh, yeah. And I got uh, went to the hospital after my wife called me an idiot, rightfully <laughs> so. Um, had surgery on Sunday, discharged on Monday. The Toronto Star laid me off on the Tuesday. Mm. Um, presumably not because of the elbow, but I can't ever be too sure. <laughs> um, so then, you know, I'm off for about a month. And when I come back and you have the, the lunch meetings, the coffee meetings, the what am I going to do with the rest of my life sort of conversations. On a Monday, uh, an editor uh, that I, I knew from National Post, worked at McClellan Stewart, said, hey, you want to meet for beers? I'm like, well, I don't have a job, so I look weird. <laughs> and then honestly, it was like that Thursday or Friday, I got an email from San Francisco saying, hey, what do you think about this? So it was within the same week, within the same time. So the balancing is, I mean, working for a startup um, and working for a digital startup, um, we don't have an office. So um, you're able to communicate with writers and with everybody on Slack um, and able to do interviews on my cell phone from anywhere. Um, So what I do is, because so much of this is based in Peterborough, I would work in the food court of the Lansdowne Place Mall. Using, <laughs> and, and thank you very much to BMO and H&M for their free food court Wi-Fi. <laughs> um, so I would do interviews in my car. I, I did. I remember clearly, I did a story on Jer, uh, JVR, James Van Riemsdyk, his green mouth guard, and how he chewed on it. Yeah. It was never in his mouth. Yeah. I talked to dentists. I talked to former teammates. I talked to NHL alumni. And I talked to them all in my car, which was parked outside the food court at Lansdowne. And I would go inside and transcribe. Um, and then I would start writing, and then I would go to a Pete's practice or a Pete's meeting or a Pete's whatever, or or speak to an interview. I had interviews lined up in Peterborough, and then come back to the food court and write it and file it probably just before closing, and then drive home to Toronto, and I would repeat that a couple times every week. And, I mean, the other thing is, you know, I'm married with two kids, um, and, and I coach my kids' sports teams. So I might coach a game and a practice on a Saturday and then drive to – Peterborough or Owen Sound or Buffalo or catch a flight to Ottawa or Saskatoon or Chicago. So it was a lot of coffee, uh, a lot of uh, peanut M&Ms, <laughs> sometimes in concert. So I'm, I'm still working off the after effects of that. And uh, it, well, multitasking life and in some ways, if I might say so, multitasking book. How did you sort of come to the decision to sort of have this itinerant narrative where you're sort of you know, one chapter you're really you know embedded with the Peterborough Pete's and be fascinated to find out how you went about approaching them. And then in the next, you're describing these irate minor hockey pairs. <laughs> I don't want to get that on half ice. <laughs> you know. um, Jordan Ginsburg, who's the editor, um, he come, he, he's, he's sort of established my favorite phrase for it. It's kaleidoscopic. Um, a kaleidoscopic view. Because we were talking about hockey in Canada, right? Like, it's, it's massive. Like, it is just enormous. Yeah, I mean, registration's flatlining at the grassroots level. You can take a look at TV ratings. You can take a look at any metric and say, this is the issue with minor hockey. This is the issue with hockey. But it is massive. And at a certain point, we realized, yeah, we're going to use the Pete's as the narrative spine. 
and explore a lot of the issues that we're, we're talking about through the piece. But you can't just, you can't keep it on a single narrative. It's just too massive. Plus, there's, I wanted to talk to Rock Carrier. <laughs> I wanted to talk to a bunch of different people um, and, and hear what they had to say. So to try and blend it in with a theme, to, to sort of take you in here and, and say, look, here's what the Peterborough Peets are, the challenges they're facing um, as it relates to the themes we're talking about elsewhere in the book. But also, like, you know, here's Rock Carrier and Nelson Reese, who are, you know, an artist and a politician who, I mean, arguably, within the last 30 years, helped to do more to shape the way we view the game, both from an artistic and a legal standpoint than you know, any two Canadians. So to get them all blended in, I mean, maybe it was a blender. Um, that was the choice that Jordan suggested, that, you know, you bounce around and, and try and take you to all the interesting points you can. Uh, getting behind the scenes or getting in with a with any team, especially a hockey team, I'm imagining is, is you got to earn trust somehow. How did you how did you manage to, to, you know, to get in with, with the Pete's and the way you did? Um, Burton Lee is the business manager, um, sort of the uber business person there now. Um, and I reached out to him, you know, to have a coffee. Um, I, I, I worked with, you know, I'd done some junior hockey things and, and I had a couple of people maybe send me an email saying, hey, this person isn't strictly speaking, you know, somebody you have to worry about. <laughs> they're, they're a journalist. They're not, you know... I don't know what the word would be, but um, put in a good word for me, I think. And sat down with Burton, and, and he was fabulous. He's a very smart guy. Um, and we sat down, and I'm like, I would love to you know, follow this team for a year, and here's why. That, you know, I love hockey. This isn't going to be a hit piece, but I want to see you know, how will all these things manifest themselves in you know, a hockey town. Like the Peets, when you closed your eyes and thought about hockey in this country for a long time, it was the Peets. Like the people that they have put into the NHL, there's so many, I mean, Nate would know this, you would know this, so many people, it's the Peterborough Mafia. And when you close your eyes and you're like, you know, where where might Tom Cochran have been singing about when he sang <laughs> Big League? It could have been Peterborough. Like everybody in Peterborough has a tie to the Peets. And, and if you're going to explore Canada's game, why not go to one of the cities? And I know Peterborough is not the only one, but it's certainly one of them where a town is inextricably linked to a hockey team. And, and that's where we started. And, and all, I, all I ever promised was that I would tell the story of this season truthfully and honestly, and, and he opened the doors. Why is Peterborough struggling or, or on a, the, you know, I guess on a downturn or, or in demise? What's gone on with them compared to, let's say, Erie or Saginaw? Um, how does that relate to this story of, of hockey in crisis? Yeah, it's sort of it's not a it's not a perfect parallel, but I mean, you look at hockey, and I'm talking at a macro existential level in Canada. That that hockey for years, its marketing plan was let's open the door and everybody will come in and play hockey because of course they will. It's a cold country. It's miserable. So what else <laughs> are you going to do, right? Like for years and years, what are you going to do? Like you're going to go sit out in the snow, or you want to come inside? Have your parents drink some terrible arena coffee and you go play hockey. Or maybe you go outside, just like Rock Carrier wrote about. Um, and that's what it was for years and years and years. So the Peets, for years and years and years, said, well, look, we have, we have some of the brightest hockey minds in the history of the game. Like Scotty Bowman, Roger Nielsen, Dick Todd. Like, come on in. Like, what else are you going to do in Peterborough in the middle of winter? You're going to come watch us. So they sort of sat, I don't want to say they sat on their laurels, but, but certainly they weren't acutely attuned to emerging business trends, let's say. So Peterborough is, is kind of a conservative town in, in its own way. And I don't mean conservative politically necessarily. I mean, just mean that they're deliberate. Let's say they're very deliberate before they make changes. So 
you know, whereas hockey didn't move forward to say we need to be more proactive in getting new Canadians and encouraging more girls and getting more ranks publicly funded um, to now where it's professional and it's really expensive. So too did the Peets and Peterborough, you know, not build a new arena, not build the infrastructure in which the Peets could have thrived. So, you know, whereas in Peterborough, they voted for $13 million to, you know, fix almost a literal barn and put in a couple of suites down in Oshawa. They built a brand new arena, and now they have a bunch of fancy new banners to go with it. In Windsor, they built a fancy new arena, and it's fabulous. In Barrie, they have a, a reasonably new arena, and it's fabulous. And in Peterborough, you still play with boards that are actually square. <laughs> <laughs> and they're a community-owned team. Is that that's, that's, that's the other interesting thing? And it's not even really community-owned. Like you think the Green Bay Packers are community-owned? That everybody has share prices, or the, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are community-owned? This is owned by five volunteers from the community so they don't they you know they, to join the board you put a dollar in and when you leave the board you take a dollar out and in between you don't take any money out that you know they are legally if the peats were to start hemorrhaging 10 million dollars a year they're legally on the hook for it um those five guys and they're they're not you know billionaires they're they're a local high school principal they're uh, you know dave pogue is is the president the chair and you know, he ran a trucking company and has a bunch of real estate holdings and working in radio. But, you know, he's, he's comfortable, but he's not, like, billionaire comfortable. So, yeah, they're owned by a consortium of well-meaning uh, community members who want the best for the team. But, but, yeah, they don't have the money to splash out, you know, for a brand-new weight room out of their own pocket. I'm going to switch gears again. Hope you don't mind. Kaleidoscopic interview. <laughs> That's a, that's a fancy term for it. Uh, did did writing this book change the way you view the game at all levels? Yeah, so I never I played like a really terrible house league hockey in Burlington, like really terrible. Like I embarrassed the game, my family name, everything. <laughs> um, so the way it really started to evolve for me is we have we have two kids now, eight and four. Uh, Brendan's the eldest, at eight, and Molly's four. Um, Brendan started playing house league hockey and started playing select hockey, which in Toronto basically is kind of rep at a ridiculously young age, like six, you're playing travel games and that sort of thing. And so it was going into the arena and thinking, well, I'll just tie his skates and throw him out there and he's going to have fun and whatever happens may. The very first day I was in that arena in East York, uh, East York, Ontario, um, I was tying his skates and his big brown eyes were smiling and he's happy and everybody around the room's talking and it's September and it's a warm-up skate and I start listening because I don't know many people and that changes quick too which is why hockey's amazing which we can get into later but um, I start listening to a conversation between two parents down the other way and you know two dads were talking about what you do over the summer oh we went to this cottage what'd you do I had gone, they could have gone to Mars it doesn't matter but what it was was it was an entree to well, no, we took little Jimmy to, uh, to Ryerson because they have that skating treadmill where they have professional coaches who break down little Jimmy's stride. And if he's, you know, choppy, you know, like he's on top shelf or whatever, um, then they can lengthen up the stride. It's like, oh, yeah, no, I, I took little Bobby to this other camp. And, you know, for a week they work on, you know, skills, then power skating, then small area games. And I'm looking. I'm like, my kid at this age, he still wets his bed at least once a week, right? Like, I don't even put him on a treadmill at all. So that's when, it really started, that's when it really started changing. And, and now we're a few years in, and, and every year something else really unexpected or crazy happens that you're like, they're still eight years old, but once they get the gear on, you're like, 
well, of course, you know, what's he doing? His stride's terrible. Like, why isn't he doing that inside edge work better? Like, all of these things, um, I'm not saying I do that with my kids. That's that's what people are looking at now. It, it really is something that I never would have expected had I not had kids in hockey. And my four-year-old daughter is starting hockey school next month. I think you've told TVO, I think your son has, like, a Fitbit. He does, he does. He has a Fitbit. He is... He is athletic. He is everything I'm not. He has he has great hair, um, and, and he's he's like I I I don't sweat. I don't. It's a medical thing. I don't have sweat glands. So in the summer, I become a hermit. Um, he he is indestructible. Like his mom, my wife is is from India, and she took them back uh, in January for a family reunion, and I stayed safely here, mostly because I still have the book to edit, but also because had I gone, I would have died. Um, <laughs> So he can run, he can skate, he can do all of those things forever and ever in a day, and he he adores it. Like we have pictures of him at you know tournaments. We have pictures of him. I, I enrolled him just to see what it was like at the Peterborough Pete's winter hockey camp one year. And when they're bag skating, the kids he's up there smiling like an idiot. Like he loves <laughs> hockey. He loves everything about it. So he's been he's honestly been the way that I viewed a lot of these issues at the grassroots level. You know, both as a parent and I try to watch it through his eyes as well. Yeah, well, but, but the, for me, one chilling phrase when you said it, because it's like, wow, he nailed it. I think it was like, you said something like, parents helped and helped reinforce the structure of minor hockey. What are some of like, the pros and cons of that? I mean, parents, and I, 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 you know, I spoke to a lot of folks who have already been through this, who have children or played through maybe the GTHL or, or maybe even you know, uh, parallel age groups and skill levels outside of Ontario and Toronto. Um, but the parent groups become your social network. So on one way, like you, it, it really is community building. Like you meet the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker that you wouldn't have met who are your neighbors through hockey. Like you really do, it does, it sounds so cliche, but it really does sort of have the ability to pull tight the fabric of the community. But on the other hand, like we're all out there, and I like to think I'm rational about this. I, mean, I, wrote, I wrote a book about it. But at the same time, like the last week of August, yeah, I was sending my eight-year-old kid to a hockey camp where they're on the ice three hours in the morning. They go to a CrossFit gym for an hour. Then they go have lunch, and then they're on the ice for two hours in the afternoon. That's borderline child abuse. <laughs> but that's also, I mean, if you want to keep up and you want to make sure that he plays with his little friends and he can stay on that level so that he can go with them, whether it be AA, which is where they're trending at this moment, that as a parent, you just want him to be happy. And you want to make sure, am I doing everything I can? So it does become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Are you, you know, your kid obviously wants to be out there. Are you seeing with these rep teams and, and guys and you know, parents you're hanging out with and seeing, are there situations where you can obviously tell the kids in there because the parent wants the kid to be in there? So we're booked through here until next week. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. Did we bring food that we can continue we, we on? We've got more Fiji yeah, okay. water. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so here's the challenge. And I consider this a victory. And I don't want to, like, this whole book isn't a personal anecdote, please don't get me wrong, but I'm just going to, because this one's the easiest to relay. Um, my little guy, his regular season ended in February, March. Um, we, as a coaching staff, uh, made our own spring team. So most of the kids on the roster, we went and entered a couple of tournaments, and we had a couple practices. And I consider it a massive victory that my eight-year-old was off the ice the second week of May and did not get back on the ice until the last week of August. Now, you'll think, well, you know, hockey's kind of over in May, and why would you even think about it in August? Because hockey doesn't start until October. Well, you're wrong. 
Like, there are kids in his age group who play three-on-three, who go to weekly shinny, who go to hockey camps, who play on summer teams all year round. Um, And the rational brain thinks, well, of course they're going to burn out. Of course they're, you know, their little hips are going to be, you know, burned out. Of course they're going to look like Alexei Ponikarovsky, (laughs) who, you know, the least forward who looked like he'd always just gotten off riding a horse with John Wayne for three days straight, right? Like, of course all of these things are going to happen. But then you're like, well, my son's going to fall behind. Am I... My daughter's going to fall behind. What am I doing? I'm a terrible parent. And it's this, it really is this internal struggle. And, and that's part of driving up the cost of driving up the anxiety of making it miserable. Because if, if your kid is on the ice year round from six, seven, eight, nine, ten, by the time they get to 12, they're going to be like, screw this. And I think that's a big part of why when you see that when they get to 13, 14, 15, the registration rolls just drop off a cliff that, you know, life gets in the way and hockey is something to do. Because it's there, but it's not fun. And it should be fun first. Just looking at your team again, or, or just what you're seeing overall, what's the, the economic makeup are you seeing uh, of the parents? Are you seeing everyone just generally in the same kind of bracket or working in the same general areas? Or is this, you know, is this a situation where there's people from all different types? Some people, you know, do it working extra to make it happen. I mean, that's possible. Um, we just we're starting the new season. I mean, the season doesn't even start till October. We already played six games and had seven practices. <laughs> um, so I know the core group that yeah, we're, we're pretty. I'd say middle class to upper middle class. I I am more firmly in middle class. I drive a two thousand nine Honda Civic, but yeah, no, there there's some families with some nicer cars. Um, but yeah, I don't know the economic situation for all of them. But I do know that you know when you go to the GTHL Top Prospects game. And that's the one where it's all the top minor midget players, the, the folks that you're going to look at for the OHL draft. I've been to that at Scotiabank Pond for you know for part of this book and also for part of my day job um, at Scotiabank Pond. And you pull in and you're like, did I just pull into like a Range Rover dealership or like you know there's a Porsche or like is somebody going to call the cops? It's like ew, a Honda Civics in the parking lot. Like <laughs> like you go in there and yeah, like to get your kid to that level. I think you know in Ken Campbell's book, Selling the Dream, years ago. Uh, he talked about, I think it was uh, Matt Duchesne's parents estimated they spent 350000 Canadian getting him from the time he was in Tyke to that NHL draft. Like $350,000, it's a lot of money. And you can see it. You can see how it's possible. Like to sit here, you're like, that's crazy talk. But then when you're in it, it's like, you know, remember I mentioned that week that, you know, my eldest spent at hockey camp. That was $790. That's one week of one year of one season in minor hockey. It's it's funny that you mentioned uh, we were gonna we we're gonna talk about the Ken Campbell thing in a second here, um, but uh, because of that point, I asked a few people I know in the industry that have play, that played in the, in the NHL, you know, a while back. They played that started in the '80s. I asked them, "What did you? What do you think your parents paid to get you here?" And most of the time, the answer was they didn't really know. Meaning that I took from that that it was probably not that significant to the point where you would actually know. Hey, we spent three hundred grand. Uh, Dave Poulin, who's a Notre Dame guy, he said that he played house league until he was 16, and they gave him equipment, I think, with the registration. So it just shows you maybe that's the that's the dividing line right around there, maybe mid-80s, early 90s, whatever it is. Too, yeah. it's, it's a kind of well, but more on selling the dream. Yeah, exactly. You referenced the book. Uh, a good book I've written a few years ago, Jim Parcells and yeah. Ken Campbell, Selling the Dream. Just the stories, like the family that lived on the houseboat so their son could play in the GTHL. I guess, is it fair to say that as long as the, I guess the carrot of uh, making Mitch Marner money is out there, there's no chance of decelerating that? 
I mean, I think that's the easy one. Um, that you say, well, you know, your kid wants, you think your kid's going to go to the NHL. I think that's only part of it. I think that, I think it really is that you just want the very best for your kid at whatever level they go to. I don't think everybody has NHL dreams in front of them. Um, I think even, you know, some of the more intense hockey parents might realize that ultimately. But at the same time, it's, you know, if your kid is someone showing huge proficiency in science, like you get him a tutor to push him forward, I don't know. But I do know what I've seen is, like, there are hockey camps that will tailor to your every tiny little neuroses about <laughs> little Jimmy or little Jenny's skating stride or, you know, is she using, you know, her hands properly when she's making tight turns? Um, can she, you know, cross over? Uh, does she... Does she have the use of her outside edge properly? And you want your kid to keep up with their friend group. And I, I think at the core of it, that's what it comes down to, that you want them to play at the highest level that they want to play at. You never want to see your kid cut. So, like, you know, for our team, um, our team is the Tier 2 team uh, in our minor hockey association. So our kids were all kids that nobody else wanted. Like, they were all cut. And now here we are three years later. They're trending towards a double-A team. Like, they're playing lots of hockey. But you never... Even at five, and think about that, there were kids cut from a team at five. Um, you don't want to see them have to go through that. So I think that's what fuels it, too, is you don't want to see your kid mopey or cry because they couldn't make a team that they want. Yeah. Oh. Anyways, that sort of segues into what we, we usually ask our guests to favor us with a little reading. And uh, this is, uh, I think, the passage is when Half Ice came into the GTHL and people were just apoplectic about it. And you're describing a sports scientist named Stephen Norris, an Englishman, I believe. Yes. Right? Okay. And very smart man. If you start right at the part where his name is first mentioned, sure. mentioned talked about what happened when uh, he explained to the room what we're kind of not doing quite right. Sure. Um, Stephen Norris had intense eyes, a shaved head, and an English accent. He was a sports scientist who worked as a consultant with Hockey Canada and he flew into Toronto from Calgary on short notice for the meeting. He was also not there to discuss the specifics of implementing the initiation program. Norris wanted to make sure every executive in that room fully understood the importance of changing how Canadians coach the game to their children. He lectured on the physiology of young players and how they develop at different speeds on and off the ice. He offered tips on how coaches can maximize their ice time, and he bemoaned the focus on games and results over practice and development. Even with just two lines, they're sitting on the bench for 50% of the time, he said. You turn up for an hour, and how long are you sitting on the bench? Occasionally, he would throw out a statistic designed to shock the audience. Canadians used to comprise about 98% of the players on NHL rosters, he said, but in the span of 25 years, that number had dropped below 51%. He gave the number a moment to breathe before he continued. This is disgraceful, he told the room, animated but not angry. If we were the board of directors of PepsiCo, we would all be fired, the entire community. <laughs> exactly. Wow. We've talked about economics and, and you know, primarily, I guess, today, a little bit about the Pete's. Can you expand on, um, I guess, the numbers stagnating and the focus on perhaps bringing new Canadians into the mix uh, to, you know, to get hockey kick-started again, if that's the right way to say it. Yeah, I mean, so the Canadian population is growing. It is. I mean, it, it's, 
I don't know what it is at this exact moment, but it's somewhere north of about $36 million or right around there at this point. Um, so it's been going up. Hockey Canada's registration has been stagnating. So even if you have you know, a minor hockey association executive saying, look, we're holding firm. We have just as many kids today as we did five years ago. That's, you're, you're losing market share. Like There are a bunch of people who are joining this country, and you are not capturing them. And that's a problem. So why? There are a bunch of different reasons. One is, you know, gaming. Uh, video games are, are more popular now than even when, you know, our three wrinkled old butts were kids. <laughs> um, you can play soccer year-round now in many more markets rather than just large urban centers. There are domes everywhere. Um, basketball is emerging. Um, but, you know, there's also just generally fewer children participating in, in active sports, and there's a lot of other things going on. Um, but then you look at hockey specifically, and you're like, well, well, why wouldn't hockey be attractive? Like this is, you know, there's there's one uh, section in there where it's Nelson Reese, who is the former MP from British Columbia, who grew up in the foothills south of Calgary, and, and Rock Carrier. And Rock Carrier was born in San Justin, Quebec, and his family had been in Canada since the formation of the Canadian Shield. Um, and, and Nelson Reese is the son of immigrants. And they describe, like if you close your eyes and you think of the hockey sweater, you know, the, the short oh, story, yeah. close your eyes and you think about it, about you know, going to church, dreaming of hockey, going to school, dreaming of hockey. Nelson Reese described that exact same childhood to me growing up in Alberta as the son of immigrants, as Rock Carrier did in Quebec. Son of immigrants, hockey, that's what you did. It was accessible. It was the every person's sport. Um, I mean, certainly then it was open almost exclusively to males, but that's a, that's a separate issue. Um, but it was accessible. And now there is like this strange language that, you have to know that, you know, your child is no longer born and, you know, he's no longer eight years old. He's born in 2011. <laughs> um, you have to know that there are hockey schools to go to. You have to know registration times. You have to know that if you miss the registration window by a week, depending where you are, it might be full. Or, you know, you might have terrible ice time. Or you might not be able to get to all the games or the practices because practices are at four and you work till five. And, um, you know... If you're new to Canada and you have no background in the game, whereas before maybe public skating was part of the gym class at the local school, like do the shin pads go on before the socks? Do the pants go on before <laughs> the shin pads? Like, all of these things require families and kids to cross a delta that they never really had to before. And in today's busy world, who has time? Who cares? What is Hockey Canada doing to try and curb this uh, problem? A bunch of different things. Um, you know, they've funded uh, a couple of programs. Um, one is is Try Hockey, which goes around, you know, with two guys in a truck pulling a trailer full of gear. Where and this is partially funded by Hockey Canada, I should say. Um, and, and they'll go to a school and they'll say, "Hey, you know, all you grade fours, who's playing organized hockey this year?" And shockingly, maybe seven percent of the kids on average will raise their hand, and then they'll get them on the ice that weekend and say, "Hey, look, here's six weeks. You know, give it a try." Um, I think Hockey Canada, one of the more um, impactful things in the long term is, you know, we're looking at retention. So you don't want to get kids into hockey and then chase them away because, you know, if you're a normal, you know, well-adjusted parent, maybe you do have your kid get into hockey at novice for the first time. So they're eight, but they're going up against kids who have been playing select since four or five. So obviously there's going to be a skill disparity there. So what Hockey Canada has done is the modified ice program. So this year at Novice, just as an example, and this goes down to type two, is the ice is divided into half. And on one half, and you're using both halves of the ice 
two different games. On one half, you have the kids who've been playing forever since they were spermatozoa. And then you have the other kids who are learning at their own pace, playing against each other. And because it's smaller area games, um, there's more puck touches, there's more passing, there's more involvement, more engagement, more fun, like more shots, goalies get more work. Everything is, is scaled down and it's better. So the kids who are learning at their own pace are more likely to stay with the game. That's the working theory. And if they stay with the game, then, you know, that time when, you know, they hit the growth spurt at 12 where all of a sudden, you know, they're 6'2", 220, rather than being the best 6'2", 220 volleyball player en route to play at Wilfrid Laurier University, maybe they stick in hockey and use those skill sets and that athleticism to benefit hockey. You know, it's interesting, I mean, just an aside, uh, talking about what an investment it is and, and, and positional positional playing, I, I just, just came to my head, we had Carl Subban on here who uh, really did everything to get his kids into hockey um, and, and to get to where they are. He tells that interesting story about Malcolm uh, wanting to switch to goalie right at that age, I think it's before you go into midget, right? Where it's like that's when people are really watching you. Is that correct? I'm not sure. The the uh, a little younger than that, I think, was Pee Wee around there. And just what a dilemma it was in that house that hey, this guy, you know, will switch to goal and, and he's this late in his career, and it was like it was like 11 or 12 <laughs> or something. And they it was it was actually like a huge dilemma in their house, and he made it. But yeah, I just thought of that now and just. To, you know, some of the stuff you're talking about, how intense it is and specialized coaching. But anyway, back to my question. Um, so we know what's not working here in Canada and what they're attacking to try and improve upon. Do you know in any of the other hockey-playing countries, uh, like Sweden or Finland, are they are there are similar issues? I mean, it might be a, a big question for you because you didn't focus on those countries in this for this. But do you know if there's the similar issues in, in other countries like Sweden, Finland? Well, I mean, Sanaya Sapurji, um, who works for The Athletic, was nominated for a National Newspaper Award a few years ago, and she looked at that exact thing, that the models are different. You know, in Sweden, just as an example, um, the competition is de-emphasized at the younger age. And what that means is um, kids in Sweden don't see a scoreboard until they're about 12. So why is that a big thing? Well, what you get is because, you know, it's for the adults that, you know, in Canada – where they do play a lot of games and where you could play three games for every practice, which sounds crazy, but it can happen, is you're coaching to the scoreboard because everybody likes to win and nobody likes to lose. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe it means little Johnny or little Jenny at the end of the bench doesn't see a shift in the third period because you want to win that game. Whereas, you know, in some European countries, um, with the, the results, the emphasize, you work on the skill. You work on the, you know, the puck handling. You work on the basic fundamentals, and you build it up, and you build toward playing at a higher level for that competition. So what you get are more well-rounded players generally, and and you're less likely to chase them off because nobody likes to sit at the end of a bench for the third period. And the, why is such a? I mean, this don't keep score concept. I mean, it's it's not. I mean, it's something that's you know throughout Europe. I think Germany. We do it here in soccer too. Yeah, we do it here in soccer. We do it in high stage soccer. They, they don't keep scoring. They play on modified size fields. Yeah, but there's such a why is such a resistance to it? Like even people, some people like uh, I think my sister who will be a hockey parent in a couple of years was like, you know, she's like, I love the smaller ice games. I played in a th goalie in a three on three league. I got like eighty shots a game. Uh, <laughs> but she's like, not keeping scores dumb. But why? Why do people have such a hard time getting wrapped around this concept? It's really interesting, and it, it's it's not about the kids. It's about the adults. Like the kid, if you're a four-year-old and you go play, and at the youngest age, Tyke, the initiation program at Tyke, means you divide the ice into thirds. 
So at novice, you divide it into half, and you have one game going on one half, one game going on the other. At tight, the entry point, you divide the ice into thirds, and you play sideboard to sideboard. So at the far end, you can have a game going a four on four. At the other end, you have a game going four on four. And in the middle, you have a water station, and you do some drills. They're moving all the time. They're playing a ton of hockey. It's, again, an imperfect you know parallel, but it's like playing pond hockey. It's, it goes back to the Gordie Howe Rock Carrier. Like, you're always playing. It doesn't, it's not super structured, but you're always playing. You're always moving. You're having fun. You're, you're engaged in the game. But it doesn't look like hockey. When you're in the stands, you know, your kid's moving from, you know, one stage because they rotate. So it's, you know, they go from, you know, one game to the middle station to the other game, back to the middle station to the other game. And parents are moving and they're following their kids. And it doesn't look like hockey. And frankly, it, it can kind of be boring because you don't know what's going on. You know, maybe one kid on your, your kid's team is looking up at the scoreboard or trying to pick their nose through the cage, like a whole bunch of things. It doesn't look like hockey. And, and the challenge, to your point, Nate, is, you know, who's paying for all this? It is the parents. And the parents, you know, especially here, there's one example that the North York Hockey League, which is a for-profit, unlike, you know, the GTHL, which is, I think, is strictly a not-for-profit, um, Parents do drive the bus because they are the customers. And if parents are paying the freight, they wanna they tend to, to lean towards things that they want to watch and that they value. And that's that's still at the youngest age is a scoreboard. Yeah. Now in terms of values and what you're describing the way it is now, it it does sort of say, well, that's a way to make everyone feel like they're part of it and they belong. There's also in terms of belonging and I guess values, uh, there's the section you get to where the Peets had a citizenship ceremony on the ice. And at times you're documenting, like, you know, people carping, oh, it's holding up the game here, you know. Uh, what, what, did that, what did that whole, what did you take away from that whole experience of, you know, just maybe some of the social attitudes that are kind of attached into the sport or maybe even encouraged within the sport still to this day? Yeah. Have you seen, have you guys seen, like, a citizenship ceremony? Like, have you ever been to one, like a friend or a neighbor? I don't neighbor? think I have. Yeah. actually have. Yeah. Like, yeah. they are gorgeous things. Oh, yeah? They are they are deeply powerful, right? Like at the end, at the end, the efficient says, welcome home. Like that's something, right? Like that's, it is, it is a gorgeous, beautiful ceremony. And what the Peets did was like, it's audacious. Like they, they have a shoestring staff. Um, and you're looking at like, there are, there are norms that you have to follow. There's protocol you have to follow right down to the color of the tablecloth. Like it can't be red. It can't be blue, depending on which government, which party's in power. Uh, that, that would connotate, you know, political. Um, you have to get carpet on the ice. You have to get chairs on the ice. You know, some of the citizens are being sworn in are a bit older, so they have walkers. And you know, what if the maybe one of the elderly citizens gets the walker caught in the carpet and you know flips over? Like then you have a safety issue. All of these things, all of these things that go into planning it. And the Pete's, because you know, in large part, Burton Lee um, and Dave Pope, the president, believe that. They do have to do more active outreach to say hockey is for everyone. The Pete's are for everyone in Peterborough. Please come out and have a look at it. They said, we're going to do this. And, you know, in the beginning, there was the question of, you know, what happens you know, because of the climate we're in if, you know, somebody says go home, somebody says boo, somebody says something horrible, and all of a sudden this beautiful symbolic, I mean, not even symbolic, it was a real-world gesture, becomes international headlines because Peterborough is the place where they booed immigrants on the ice. Um, that didn't happen. In the bowl, I mean, it went on a long time. 
the, the speaker system didn't work as well as it should have, so it kind of crackled. There was a hockey game. The Leafs were playing on the concourse, so people were watching TV on the concourse, and not everybody was paying attention, but, but those who did applauded, and warmly so. But there were folks, and I, I, I probably burned a few calories running around because I wanted, like, you can't be everywhere at once, but I tried. I'd go spend five minutes listening in one place, five minutes eavesdropping in another place, just to sort of get a temperature of it. And yeah, up in the up in the, the one place where they have scouts and you know hockey officials, hockey people, that's where you heard the grumbling of like, oh, I gotta be in, I gotta be in, you know, Rune Miranda in two days to watch this game. This is holding me up. I gotta be, I gotta beat the weather out, you know. And and there was one that said, you know, why are we doing this? It's not like they're gonna come back and watch the game. <laughs> like, why are we doing this? They don't care about hockey. So there is that entrenched old hockey. Yeah, you're gonna pay lip service to hockey for everybody, but you know. And, and I think that that was a real instance of the conflict between the Peets, which are, you know, they're trying to do things outside the box. So Burton Lee and Dave Pogue and that management group are doing smart things outside the box to reach new people. And they're coming up against the, the hockey institution that's, hockey's fine, just leave us alone. Are you, um, now, this book is, is, is yet to be out in stores, right? It's, this is September. It's coming out October October 1st, 1st. about 10 days. So have, have you given some of the Pete's guys an advanced copy of this, or are they going to see it when it comes out? And what do you expect the uh, reaction to be? Uh, Dave Pogue, uh, I did hand deliver one of the advanced copies to right. Dave Pogue. Uh, I'm delivering a copy to Burton Lee. The, the, I got a few of the, the final products. I'm delivering one of those to him this week at some point. Um, I haven't gotten feedback directly, but I do believe a few of them have RSVP'd to the book launch. I'm going to take that as a good thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they'd show up if they weren't. Uh, no, I mean, uh, it's, like, I'm not out to take a run at the Pete's, like specifically. Like I'm not out to mm. say, oh, look at these guys. They're backwards. They're representing. No, because they're not. Mm. They are dealing with the best. They're dealing as best they can with the hand they're dealt. And that hand involves almost a literal barn. That hand involves working in a place that, you know, is kind of off the beaten path now. That, you know, this is a, the OHL, I mean, Nate, and you guys would know that this is a big market game now. That, you know, you look at Windsor, you look at, you know, what it's become. You look at London. Like, London plays in an NHL miniature rink, and it's not even that miniature anymore. Like, so the Peets are, you know, playing 1970s facilities in a 2019 game. So it's more of exploring how they're trying to combat that. Because it is kind of a parallel to now how you have volunteer minor hockey executives who are dealing with sometimes antiquated marketing or, or outreach programs and how they're trying to adapt in a, in a modern era. This is your first book, correct? Yes. Um, so given that process, um, do you think you're going to take some time off now before a second one comes <laughs> up? Or, um, or yeah. do you have a second one in mind? I mean, this is the one I really wanted to write. Like, this is, this is one that, like, the idea, especially, like, the timing of it just, just came through. That, you know, I have always loved hockey. Um, I mean, it's paid a significant portion of my mortgage over the years, <laughs> uh, indirectly. But especially since we became hockey parents and, and you really start to look at the game and the fact that, you know, we live here in Toronto. And you take a look, you step into an arena, and I feel like I'm back in Burlington in 1985 <laughs> and not Toronto in 2019. And you're like, why is this? And, you know, this opportunity um, allowed me to sort of explore that um, through the lens of a hockey town and, and how they're trying to do it and, and, and the challenges that are facing them in, in reaching that. And, and, I mean, there are some answers there. 
Uh, Phil McKee from the Ontario Hockey Federation has some, some interesting insight. Um, certainly, uh, Tom Rennie at Hockey Canada has some interesting ideas, and, and Hockey Canada is trying to do interesting things. But the problem is, is as we talked off the top, hockey is so enormous in this country that, you know, the challenge in Halifax isn't the same challenge as in Saskatoon, isn't the same challenge certainly as in the GTA or the Lower Mainland. It's as enormous as the country is gigantic. Absolutely, and it's been carved into a whole bunch of different fiefdoms where, you know, I always assumed that Hockey Canada would say XYZ, and XYZ went through the, the giant turbine and was it became XYZ on the grassroots level. But the communication is just, it's awful. It's appalling, actually, and, and everybody in it acknowledges that, that, you know, a communication from Hockey Canada, just say this, this modified ice program, communicating what modified ice looks like, like, you know, how do you create programming for tykes? Like, right down to, you know, minor hockey executives are, do we use goalies? Do we use nets? Where do we get the foam dividers? Like, can we use fireman hoses? Can we, like, all of these things, none of it was directly communicated. They said, Hockey Canada said, we're modifying the ice. And all the people who had to implement it had no handbook on how to implement it. So that was a big part of the tension of what's going on here. So that's just one thing that, that clearly makes a lot of sense. Modified ice is a no-brainer. It is brilliant. But what happens if you try to implement real substantive change as it comes to registration costs or you know, nationwide equipment banks or nationwide outreach to, to underrepresented communities? Like, How do you possibly do that if you can't even get them to modify the facilities that they already have in place? Many challenges. Um, I, we have a gift for you. In case you want to write another book, we've all always heard, well, I at least, I don't know if you heard this, Glenn Stout, who uh, is uh, behind the best American sports writing, has uh, always said, if you want to write great narrative nonfiction, you got to read great fiction. So here's, here's our gift for you. Oh wow! I know it's, it's it, we, you know how do you how do you give a a, a gift on a in a, on a sports literature show, show and make it specifically about the football team? We figured, hey, this crosses off all the boxes. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, I am Rudy was offside. Is, he, is Rudy in this paperback edition? Of the <laughs> he said he, he did was short. I'll send you forward. Thank you very the much. The Hunchback guys. of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo, written by Rudy Rudiger. I uh, am ashamed to say, fellas, I've not read this book. This book, will get, this, book will get, this book will get used, and the next time you see me, there will be marks in this spine from where I've cracked it open. Thank you very much. <laughs> no problem. Uh, Nate, you got that, uh, that last question there and before mine? Yeah. Well, I'm, again, Sean, we're so grateful uh, for you joining us today. Uh, I did want to ask, um, you've, it's, we've spent a lot of time talking about, the, I guess, these fissures at the bottom of the hockey pyramid. How do you think that will filter up to major junior hockey as, a, as I guess, an entertainment product? As well, although I shudder to say that when they're 16, 17-year-old unpaid athletes. <laughs> well, I mean, what you're seeing, I mean, it, it's who's playing. Um, Terry Pekoski at the Hamilton Spectator did an excellent series a couple of years ago where um, she asked for the, the postal codes, not any personal information, just, just the postal codes of every kid on the roster of every OHL team. And I think all but five or six teams responded. And what she found was the kids from their postal codes tended to be from very well-off areas. 80% of them were from places where the, 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 the average income was so far above that, you know, and they're also from urban centers. So the, the notion of, you know, 
the, the, the old Leafs who were from the mining towns, uh, Rue Naranda or, or Timmins or anywhere, it's gone. So the kids you're going to be getting are, are generally going to be well-off, well-heeled um, kids from big cities. So what does that mean? What does that mean for Canada's roots of, you know, Tom Cochran's big league? The only place out of this town is through the game. Like, what does that do? How does that change our perception and our relationship with this game? Where do you see it going from here? I mean, I mean, you've chronicled everything up to what you saw within the last year or so uh, at the time you finished writing. Where where does it go from here? I have faith that it can change. I have faith that um, it's just going to take political action. Um, I have faith that things like equipment banks, that you know, if you played high school football, generally, more often than not, you go to grade nine, they're going to have the equipment there for you. They're going to fit you. They're going to show you how to put it on. They're going to show you how to use it properly, and they're going to coach you. So at the very entry-level ages at Tyke, why not across the country? Can you not have, because, you know, kids kids tend to grow. It's, it's really kind of a pain in the ass because you have to get the new gear. <laughs> you wish they were the short Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you do, they do tend to grow, and, you know, those shin pads that they had in Tyke, you know, when they moved to modern office, those shin pads are still in good shape. Same with the elbow pads, shoulder pads, neck guards, all those things. Skates. I mean, helmets, you always want a good new helmet. But why can't you say, you know, you give us all the gear when you grew out of it, and depending on what you give us, the shape, we'll give you a rebate for your house league renewal. So what that does is it allows everybody to say, look, come, come for an open house on Labor Day. After Labor Day weekend, kids are in school. We're going to suit your kids up. We're going to give them decent equipment, show you how to put it on, We'll give you a reduced rate to get into the house league or learn to play program, and we'll get you in the door. Because once you're in the door, I truly believe, and I've learned more through reporting on this book, because you never really think about it, that this game has the ability to do something that so few things across Canada. Like, we're a bunch of weirdos who look at a map of North America and say, we're going to take the frozen part. <laughs> and what, what relates us to each other? You know, complaining about whoever's in Ottawa, universal health care, Tim Horton's commercials and hockey, like that's it, and it's it's not a theoretical thing. Like hockey really does have the ability to pull us closer together. Whether it be meeting somebody new, um, like my my son, my eldest, uh, a new kid moved from Vancouver last year, grade two. Um, he's wearing a Canucks hat. Didn't know a soul in class. Within three days, they're best friends, trading hockey cards, talking about Elias Patterson, talking about. <laughs> P.K. Subban, and now they're inseparable. But they had that entry point because they had the game that they shared. And that has the ability to do that for a lot of Canadians. And it's it's worth thinking about, and it's worth thinking of ways to preserve it. Sean, thank you very much for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to add? No, thank you guys very much for having me on. It's It was a lot of fun. Yeah.